You may be seated. Well, good morning, friends. My name is Brad. I'm part of the uh, teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge. And before we get started looking at our uh, topic for this morning, I want to say thank you for uh, praying for us last week. One of our elders, uh, John Mayer, and I were up in Edmonton, and John was uh, speaking, doing a breakout session at a conference that we were attending. It's uh, every two years as a denominational family, we have a study conference on a topic uh, that impacts the church and our culture today. And so we were learning and processing questions around the topic of human sexuality and how do we respond uh, in our culture today. And uh, if you want, you can check out the plenary sessions. They were all recorded and they're excellent material. They're online. Go to MennoniteBrethren.ca and uh, search for study conference. You'll find the login and the password there and you can listen to those. Um, or if you follow me on Twitter, you can find the links there as well or uh, send me a Facebook request. Then after that, I headed down to southern Alberta for two days of meetings with Martin, from uh, the pastor from St. Rose Church in Laval, Quebec. Many of you who were here with us in the summer will remember that we sent a team to Laval and Spencer and Allie and their family were there and exploring what it would look like to support and strengthen the church uh, there, and so we spent a few days because St. Rose has an existing partnership in Lethbridge, Alberta, and so we were exploring the question, what would it look like for Langley, Lethbridge, and Laval all to be faithful uh, to the call that God has on our churches, and as a part of a national family, what would it look like to uh, partner together across our great country to see uh, lives in Canada transformed uh, with the power of the gospel. So keep praying for that process. It's an ongoing uh, discussion that we're having at a leadership level. So speaking of our our great land, I want to ask you a question in our topic today. And I'm pretty sure I know at least the first answer that will come to your mind, but I'm interested in other answers as well. And uh, the question is, in your opinion, what is the worst thing that you could call a Canadian? Whoa, wow, that was not what I was thinking. Wow, an American, that's what we were thinking of. For That's the first answer anyway. So with apologies to Pastor Keith and Ruth Ellen and any of the others of you and Betty Stevenson and a few others who find their origins south of the border. What are other really, really like insulting things that you could say to a Canadian that they would just think, oh, how could you say that? A witch story? All right. What else? That we're rude. It would be uh, Canadians could be offended if he called us rude. That's true. What else? That hockey sucks. You could, yeah, that could be a very offensive thing to a Canadian. Untidy. We're very untidy. Yeah. What else? Huh. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, like this general perception, right, that all of us live in igloos and, yeah. Sometimes when we're in uh, Bellingham doing some cross-border shopping, that seems to be, uh, you know, a thing that comes up. But thinking it's not about half an hour to our house from here. How come you think have these perceptions of Canadians? But I think uh, aside from a Canadian being called an American, I wonder if the worst thing that you could call a Canadian might actually be intolerant. Because as a culture, we kind, of, we kind of pride ourselves in our uh, particular version of tolerance. 
If you called a Canadian judgmental, that would be probably a real insult to our national psyche, or at very least, very un-Canadian to call it to someone's face. We have these kind of cultural phrases that have come to be unassailable. Things like, who are you to judge? Or, well, let's just live and let live, or coexist, or all kinds of culturally accepted watchwords that speak to this. And over the last number of decades, this has actually come to form a part of what it means to quintessentially be Canadian. The Canadian way is perhaps defined by the word tolerance. And there's phenomenal upsides to this. There have been things that uh, this has brought into our national psyche that are profoundly helpful to it. And we're seeing the notion tested in some ways in meeting with the church in Quebec and hearing their perspective on the way in which that's being lived out with the charter, proposed charter banning religious symbols in the public sphere. And so I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful for us to do some thinking, careful thinking, about what we actually mean by the word tolerance as Canadians. What does it mean to uh, judge others, or what does it mean to be a judgmental person, or to slip into even worse judgmentalism? And we should work at figuring this out as people of faith. What is our response to each other and to our culture on this very Canadian topic? Because oftentimes, I think Christians are accused of this more than other people. Well, this September and October, we've spent seven weeks going through a series together, exploring the question of identity. What is it that makes us unique? Are there characteristics that if you say, I'm a Christian, I follow God in the way of Jesus— I claim to be a follower of Jesus, ought there to be some things that are present in your life? And so we've explored things like a Christian view of sexuality. We explored the nature of extending a hand of hospitality to those that are very different from us. We explored radical generosity. We explored uh, holiness. So what does that mean to live in a different way? We explored serving others, and we explored living with integrity. So all of these things, we're suggesting, are indicators of transformed living, of a life that is increasingly marked by a Christian worldview. And these are far from the only things. They're just the ones that we wanted to lift up in this season of the life of Jericho Ridge as a bit of a litmus test to us to kind of hold a mirror up to our lives individually and then also corporately and ask, how are we doing as individuals and as a community in conforming to the image of Jesus and in following in obedience to him in these areas? They're identity markers. These things are like fingerprints, and you're trying to see, does my fingerprint match up? Is there coherence or consistency there? But one of the questions that we have to ask and I think Pastor Keith uh, pushed into this last weekend with the topic of human sexuality. Are there any areas where our identity as followers of Jesus would bring us into conflict with our identity uh, as a culture or as a nation? Does our identity as Christians fully overlap with what it means to be good Canadians? Or are there ways in which that would be different in some aspects. And so I'm going to suggest today that as we look into the Bible on this notion of 
judging or not judging anybody, this might be one of those areas where our cultural identity and our Christian identity is in some conflict with each other. So if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to say that the notion of not judging anybody is philosophically inconsistent. None of us do that. All of us, and as a culture, all of us draw a line somewhere. So it's not the question of, well, don't judge me, because clearly we have laws and other ways in society of creating judgment around things that are on offside. They're on the other side of a line. We would say, no, 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 that's not appropriate in this culture, in this time, in this place. So the question is not where, whether the line is drawn. The question is where do we draw a line? All of us practice judgment. Everybody judges. Everyone draws a line somewhere. But where do we draw a line and hold another person to account for their attitudes and actions? And would that be different in Christian community than it would be in our culture as a whole? So I'd like you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to look together at the driving questions of what the Bible tells us about who we are to judge and then how we are to go about that process. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing. He's one of the leaders of the early Christian movement. And he's writing to a community of people who have all kinds of problems on drawing lines with anything. As Pastor Keith mentioned last weekend, they lived in a city called Corinth, and this was an absolutely permissive society. They permitted almost anything in their society. They were so tolerant. They were so highly tolerant, in fact, that they seemed to have no problems in the beginning of this chapter with an instance of family incest. A man who claims to be a Christian, shows up to church every single weekend on a Sunday morning regularly in Corinth, is committing sexual immorality by sleeping with his mother-in-law. And the church is not only um, absolutely tolerant to this abhorrent sexual sin, they're actively choosing to look the other way. And so Paul writes this section of the letter to them and says essentially, what is going on over there? Like, everybody draws a line somewhere, and you guys have failed to draw this line at all, and you've drawn it in all the wrong places. And so he lays out an interesting principle that guides and outlines the not-so-gentle truth about judgmentalism. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in uh, verse 9, reading in the New Living Translation. Paul says this, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sins or who are greedy or cheat people or who worship idols. I mean, you'd have to avoid, you'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, a follower of Jesus, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't, Paul says, my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. 
God will judge those who are on the outside. But as the scriptures say, and this is a quote from both Leviticus and from Deuteronomy, you must remove the evil person from among you. So Paul has a driving concern here that's rooted in that description of immorality that he highlights earlier in the chapter. But Paul's concern is not that as Christians, if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, that we don't judge people. Quite the opposite, actually. He says it straight up. He's giving a very clear and very defined and focused mandate to the church to practice discernment and judgment. But he begins the discussion by laying down some helpful ground rules about who to judge, but probably more importantly, who not to judge. So who are we not to judge? Paul says the answer here is that people who are not believers, people who are outside of the church, people who do not claim to be Christians. It's not your job It's not my job to judge people who do not self-identify as followers of Jesus. That is to say, it's not your job and my job to enforce a biblical or scriptural, however you define that, definition of vision of morality or sexuality or generosity or hospitality or any of the things that we've talked about on a person who doesn't fundamentally share your identity as a person who claims to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. To put it just very simply, if the person is not a Christian, you cannot reasonably expect them to act like a Christian. And you certainly can't hold them accountable for acting like a Christian and then judge them when they don't live like a Christian. But this is something that, frankly, people of faith have struggled with throughout history. There's an incredible temptation in the human heart towards self-righteousness and moral superiority and enforcing this on those around us. And sometimes, when Christians have been in the majority in a given culture, such as happened in Canada from the late 1850s to the 1950s, Christians have actually used that majority to legislate that others adopt certain aspects of Christian worldview and a Christian vision of behavior. And so we're still actually living with some of the implications or the fallout or the residual of this in a country like Canada. But now that Christians are in the minority in Canada, and we don't have tools or mechanisms anymore, at least at a legal or governmental or moral majority kind of way, sometimes I think the only tool that Christians think that they have at their disposal is smug self-righteousness. Sitting back and throwing stones at people who do not behave as we think that they should. This is particularly easy and convenient in our world today when you can assume a pseudonym, a pseudonym rather, online and do this on any social media platform that you choose at any time to anyone without any personal reprisal. Paul here would say that the behavior of others and judging the behavior of others is not your responsibility, is not my responsibility. The role of a Christian in a public sphere is not to run and hide out. Look at verse 10. Paul says you'd have to leave the world 
if you're going to try and avoid people whose behavior was not consistent with Christian worldview and Christian behavior, you'd have to leave the world. It just isn't possible. But the role of a Christian, as a person who has an identity as a Christian, it is possible to express your opinions without becoming judgmental or sliding into judgmentalism, which is simply, I would define it as a consistent attitude towards others that you adopt no matter what the other person is doing. It's not that we can't hold perspectives on a given issue. That's not what Paul is saying here when he says, don't judge anybody. It's not that you can't express them well. I love the way John Stackhouse put this at our conference uh, last week. He said, holding views firmly and contending for them is not self-righteousness, but refusing to listen, refusing to submit to reality, that being God, the Bible, good arguments, others' wellness, the greater good. Now that, that is self-righteousness. We'll see more about this in another text about how Jesus operates and how to judge people without being self-righteous. But for now, let's be clear. It is not our job as Jericho Ridge to run about and be the morality police in Langley and Surrey. It's not our job to legislate behavioral transformation who, for those who do not claim to want it or need it. It is our job, as Danny contended two weeks ago, to love people deeply and to contend for their welfare. And so this may drive us at points to speak up. And this is the other part. And this is maybe perhaps the main part of what Paul is driving at in the text. Who am I then to judge? And the answer is those whom you are aligned and in community with. And the reason is that part of being in Christian community is willingly submitting to mutual accountability. When you say yes to Jesus, if you've done that at a point in your life, you are saying yes, not to a notion of principles, but to a way of living. You're saying yes, not just to an individualized vertical relationship with God. You're saying yes to living in a community of faith with others who are committed to sharing an ethic and sharing a walk with Jesus. And this is where the responsibility of assisting each other in that commitment comes into play. Paul says very clearly in verse 12, it's not our responsibility to hold others who do not are not in mutual accountability relationship with us to account, but it is certainly our responsibility to hold to account those inside the church who are sinning. Well, why? What on earth would motivate Paul to give the Corinthians and us this seemingly harsh instruction to say, go after people around you, judge them? Well, what motivates Paul and what motivates or ought to motivate us to do this is a deep and sincere sense of love and compassion. Because love means not letting someone that I care for continue to harm themselves or to harm others. For those of you who are parents, think of it this way. There ought to be an inherent sensibility 
to this. Our kids ask us to do all kinds of stuff, which you and I know can harm them. I can remember when I was 12 asking my dad if I could borrow his car and take it out for a drive. I, my logic in my defense was that my uncle had let me, me drive his farm truck on his farm in the field, and so therefore I felt perfectly capable of operating a motor vehicle within the city limits of Dawson Creek. Obviously, my dad said no, not because he didn't love me, but in fact just the opposite. He loved me enough to know that though I thought it would be a good idea, I could do great harm to myself and others if he allowed me to proceed. Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is say no, because love means drawing a line. If you love someone deeply and have compassion for them, if you care for them, you'll move towards them when you see them continuing to harm themselves or create harm to other people in a way that demonstrates your compassion for them. And this is, I think, where we're confusing our terms because we would say, well, tolerance means loving everybody. As good tolerance Canadians, we've associated being judgmental with being unloving. The word has inherent connotations of unloving, a notion to it. But sometimes, as is the case in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a fully orbed, well-developed view of what it means to love your neighbor includes a rebuke or stopping them when they are engaged in things that are harmful to themselves and others. And in this way, I would suggest to you that loving someone is actually a much harder job than tolerating things that go on in their life. When someone that you care for is making horrible choices, it is not loving to sit back and allow them to continue down a path that will bring irreparable damage to their soul. When a person around you is persisting in behavior that's blatant and is placing their eternal destiny at risk, we are not welcoming when we tolerate that. We are to do the hard thing and to speak up and to work hard to reclaim that person for the kingdom of heaven in love. Now this hinges, though, on two very critical issues. One is that the person that I'm engaged in the conversation with has expressed that desire towards mutual accountability and wanting to follow God in the way of Jesus. Although notice here, if I love someone who doesn't claim to follow Jesus and they continue in harming themselves and others around them, I'm going to step across the line and say to them, you know what, friend, I just see this happening in your life and though we don't necessarily share a, a mutual commitment to faith and accountability, I just I want to express the love that I have for you and the compassion that I have for you and just note this in your life. But the other issue is that if there is something going on in a person's life that has made a commitment to faith and has expressed, yes, I would say that I'm a Christian, And the issue at hand is around the moral rightness or wrongness of an issue, as the Bible would set it out in those categories. 
then it's your responsibility to judge them. This is not about majoring on behavioral minors. The church has been horribly guilty of that in the past. And Jesus helps clarify, I think, this for us and sets a tone for what healthy judgment looks like. Turn over with your Bibles to me in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. And I think this is where uh, this verse gets taken out of context and gets sort of trumpeted around as a rationale for not stepping into another person's life to speak to them in mutual accountability because Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, oh, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye, when you can't even see past the the log in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough, maybe, to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So some people look at this verse and say, aha, it's right there in the Bible. You see, Jesus said it. Don't go around judging others. And these same people look at Jesus' life and you say, you know, Jesus had um, an ethic of love. He was not judgmental to people at all. So what gives you the right to come marching into my life, make a judgment about something? If Jesus never did it, you shouldn't do it. I think we have to be careful about how we understand and think about Matthew chapter 7 and the life of Jesus on the question of how am I to judge? Because Jesus here is driving at something different. He's not saying don't judge ever. He's saying when you're going to make a judgment, recognize that you will be judged as well. So Jesus doesn't say don't offer it. He says you can make judgments, but you can't be judgmental, which is very, very hard to do. I like the way uh, Dr. Craig Keener reflects on Matthew 7 in his commentary when he says, Jesus, what Jesus is warning us about here is he's warning us not to assume God's prerogative to condemn the guilty. Jesus is not warning us against exercising discernment and discerning truth from error. Furthermore, Jesus does not oppose offering correction, but he does oppose offering it in the wrong way spirit. When you approach a person, when you come to me and say, Brad, I notice something in your life that I just don't see squaring with the things that Christians have committed themselves to, it's important to do it, Matthew 7 says, with the right tone. So there's a tone of gentleness, of lovingly, patiently, and clearly, and again, out of sincere concern for a person's spiritual health and well-being, well-being, not out of a desire to be more right or self-righteous than another person. Not to come in to a person's life and say, listen, <laughs> I know there's a few things wrong in my life, but frankly, I have a whole laundry list of things that you need to shape up about. Matthew 7 is saying that's the wrong way to go about it. The bottom line of how to judge others is that we should treat others as you would want to be treated if you were committing a soul-damaging act and putting 
yourself at risk. If I was in my life engaged in sin in such a grievous way that I was going to risk not inheriting eternal life, I would sure want you to come to me and talk to me about it. Anything less would be profoundly unloving. And that's the not-so-gentle truth about judgmentalism. That because of, I think, the abuses that we have seen practiced in Christian community, we have been, I think, scared off from offering frank assessments to one another of our spiritual realities and offering helpful and humble correction in each other's lives and being willing to receive that ourselves. We've been scared off of speaking the truth in love because we've seen people who have made judgments without compassion. We've seen people slip into patterns and whole churches, some even whole movements within Christian Christendom, slip into judgmentalism where they run around and their primary concern is pointing out all the things wrong with other people and other interpretations of the Bible and other this and other that. All the things wrong in someone else's life without being willing to submit their own life or theology to scrutiny. And this is where I think it gets a little less maybe philosophical and a little bit more personal because this topic really isn't about those people out there doing all that kind of stuff. It has to be about the state of your soul and the state of my soul. The things in my life and the things in your life that are incongruent with our identity as a follower of Jesus. And I want to use two images to guide our uh, time of reflection and response today. The first image is that of a thermometer. Now, what does a thermometer do? Well, the purpose of a thermometer is to assess the internal temperature of a willing patient. This photo is of one of those in-ear ones. I can remember when our kids were really little, and we were trying to take their uh, temperature with an old-school one in their mouths, or, you know, that other kind of place where you can take someone's temperature from? as an infant and as an adult. Yeah, that wasn't working very well. There was no willingness on part of the patients to uh, have their temperature taken. And I was struck again this week as I reflected on my own life that in order for me to grow into the person that God wants me to be, in order for you to grow into the person that God wants you to be, you need to start by taking an accurate assessment taking the temperature of our souls. You need to be honest. Stick the thermometer into the deepest parts of your life and be honest with what comes out on the little screen. If you could stick a thermometer into the deepest part of your heart, what would the reading be? This is very, very hard to do on your own because we have such... Well, I have such a high capacity for self-deception. And this is why Christian community is such an incredible gift to us, because God has placed people around us 
that have the capacity to assist you in this process. But in order for them to assist you in this process, let me ask you this. Are you a willing patient? What is the level, your level of willingness to submit your soul to scrutiny? Either by the Holy Spirit and saying, like the psalmist did, search me, O God. Test my thoughts. Test my motives in my heart. See if there's any wicked ways in me and lead me in the paths everlasting. Or by other people in a community that you trust. I know for me, I have such a high capacity for self-deception that I need actually systems in my life that will help me submit my soul to scrutiny. So every two weeks I meet with a trusted friend and he jabs that thermometer into the depths of my soul and he pulls it out and he says, this is what I'm seeing. And some of it is a little bit ugly. And then I do the same for him. And sometimes the reading reveals some pretty painful stuff. And then we sit together and we talk about it. Not because we are judging each other, Far from it. We're actually opening our hearts and willing to receive correction and reproof and instruction and speaking into each other's life in ways that are profoundly healthy and life-giving. And so the question that I have for you today is, who does that for you? Who has that ability or authority to stick the thermometer, into your soul and check the reading with you. Maybe some of you, your spouse does it. I know Meg has a part to play in that process in my life simply because she knows me very, very well. And so she knows me so well that it's easier for her to take an accurate reading. But I know that I need other people around me to do this as well. You might need to think about putting yourself and reordering your schedule or reordering your relationships into a way that you would give someone the authority to do that in your life. Maybe you need to talk to Pastor Keith about getting into a life group. For for guys, we have our four quarters group. This is where the four quarters groups are designed to go into this place of taking a reading in your life and asking you about things that you want to grow in in your walk with God. Maybe you need to get into a study of the Scriptures, allowing God's Word to wash over your heart day by day. We've got the Project 345 reading plan. You can do that on your phone. You can do that. There's bookmarks that have been printed up. Get one of those and allow God's Word to speak into your life. There's a group that meets of ladies that meets on Wednesday morning at 6 at Starbucks to do that. Maybe you need to get there to begin to develop relationships with people so that you can get to know someone more who might have the ability to speak into your heart. Being in these relationships is not a magic bullet. It doesn't fix everything. It's simply a tool to help put you in a willing position where someone else can speak into your life. If you've ever tried to stick a thermometer into an unwilling patient, it doesn't work. That's like judging someone who does not want to participate in the process of mutual accountability. There will be squirming and kicking and fussing. And so if you're in a relationship with someone where you feel that that capacity is there, make sure that it's mutual and make sure that you verbalize or voice and make that choice clear to open your life up to someone that you trust and let them speak into your life. Maybe for you this will be the first time that you've ever done something like that and there is risk involved with it. 
This is a high-risk type of activity, allowing someone else to speak to the deepest parts of your heart. Being, and be willing, if you're the one holding the thermometer, as that person bears their soul to you, be willing to exercise wise counsel. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, recognizing that there are specks and sometimes logs in each of our eyes that we need to be careful about and we need repeated extraction from them. So this is the purpose of the image of the thermometer as a response. And the purpose of the second image is similar, but is a little bit different. If you want to grow, not only do you need to put yourself in an individual relationship where people can judge you without being judgmental, but we also need to put ourselves in an environment where this type of conversation becomes more normal. Because in our culture, this type of depth of conversation is not normal. Tolerance has reduced the level of honest conversation in most communities and sadly in most churches. And so I would suggest to you that the church in Canada needs a temperature adjustment when it comes to clear thinking about judging others. And so the second image is one of a thermostat, a thermometer and a thermostat. What a thermometer does to an individual body, a thermostat does in a room, except there's a key difference. A thermometer doesn't adjust the temperature in any way. It's simply a diagnostic tool. But a thermostat assesses and then adjusts the temperature of a given environment. This morning I got up early, and it was 66 degrees in our house, and I didn't just think to myself, oh, well, I hope it warms up when the sun comes out. I made the necessary adjustment to warm it up. I took action. And that's where Paul is at in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, listen, you have a responsibility to change the climate in your church and in your community. This is not just the role of leaders. Look at the pronouns that he uses. He says, this is your job. This is not the role of leaders or pastors or elders exclusively. It's the role and responsibility of everyone who is a member and a part of the community. Each of us has a part to play in shaping a high accountability, high challenge culture at Jericho Ridge. We have a team right now that's working on reshaping the membership process at Jericho Ridge to reflect this, that we want to and desire to be a place that in contrast to our culture holds each other to a higher standard. We want to be a place. That's why we come for pre-gathering prayer at 945 upstairs. That's why we have a response time following our gatherings because we want to be a place that not only sticks a thermometer in and says, hmm, needs some adjustment, but actually functions as a thermostat in places of corporate worship and prayer and in small groups to say, we want to create as many opportunities for the Holy Spirit to speak to you individually and us corporately as possible. And our goal in this is not to create some kind of nice, warm, fuzzy, pristine huddle. Our goal in this is that God would be honored and that lives would be changed and transformed both now and for all eternity. So we're going to move into a time of response in song. And I want to ask you to be bold enough to ask God to stick the thermometer into your soul and see what comes up. And if you, in this time of worship, feel like God is saying something to you about an area of your life that requires transformation, make a thermostat adjustment. Go and talk to somebody about it. Spencer and Allie will be over here at this side to pray with you. We would love to ask and stand with you 
and uh, share in what it might be that God is speaking to you about. I'll be over on this side, and we'll pray with you as the team comes and leads us. These are trusted and wise people who can help you listen to and process what God is saying to you this morning.